Well, good morning, Warehouse Church. It's so good to see everyone this morning. Anyone else like freaking out because there's only a week left till Christmas? All right, it's just me. That's all right. I was like, holy cow, we're only a week out. Uh, it feels like December has like zoomed by at fast forward and, and uh, it's just crazy. But I'm so excited that we are uh, in this season called Advent and uh, the four Sundays uh, leading up to Christmas. And uh, an Advent, really, it's simply just a word that means arrival, right? It's just a word that means arrival, which I think is really fitting for us as we celebrate the arrival of Jesus this Christmas, the true meaning of the season. It's Jesus, and that Jesus came into the world. And so we're in this teaching series that we've been spending all of December, and we're going to spend the rest of December in called Reasons for the Season. And, and so we're taking a look at what are the, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus have to come? Why did that first Christmas have to happen? And, uh, and certainly, uh, Jesus didn't come to, to gallivant around like the gods of the Roman mythology, or, uh, and he didn't just come as a tourist, right? Like Jesus didn't come from up there to down here as a tourist just to relax and take in all of his creation. That's not what he did. Jesus came for, some spe- for a specific reason. Actually, Jesus came for several specific reasons, which is why uh, what this series is all about. And so as we dive in, as we discover these reasons for why Jesus came, there's really one main point that I really want you to remember. And it's this point that Brenton reminded us last week. Didn't Brenton do a good job last week? He did such a good job and uh, so appreciative of him. And, uh, and so here's uh, the point that I want you to remember, that Jesus came on a multi-purpose mission to meet our multifaceted needs. That's why Jesus came. He came on this multi-purpose mission to meet all of our needs because here's the reality. I mean, let's just be real with each other. We're all complex and we all have many needs, right? Like some of us have more needs than the other. Now don't go elbowing the person next to you, uh, but some of us have some specific needs. Some of them are complex and Jesus, just think about this, Jesus came to meet all of those needs. And in today's passage, we'll see that one of the reasons that Jesus came, in his own words, is to testify to the truth, to bring the truth, to help us to understand what truth is. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them up with me to John chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 37 and 38 together today. And uh, you can also use the YouVersion Bible app, or it'll also be on the screens behind me. But let's read together what Jesus says in his own words as he's talking to Pontius Pilate. And he says these words, he says, Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everybody say truth. Everyone, Jesus said, on the side of truth listens to me. Now, I love how uh, Pilate responds in verse 38, and I think that his words will sound familiar to you, because here is immediately what Pilate says. He says, what is truth, retorted Pilate. And with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. And so Jesus, in this scene, he tells Pilate that the reason that he came to earth was to testify to the truth. 
And notice, like I said, that Pilate doesn't respond to Jesus by asking, well, Jesus, what is the truth? That's not what Pilate said. Rather, he asks Jesus the question. He says, well, Jesus, what is truth? Not what is the truth, but what is truth? And like Pilate, many doubt the existence of truth altogether. Like Pilate's response sounds like a very modern 2022, 2023, 2024 response, like something you would hear someone today say, like, well, what is truth? Like, is it even knowable? Can we know truth? Often people will say, well, your truth is yours and my truth is mine. And we know this, right? We've experienced this before. We've had these conversations probably before, but research even backs it up that this is an issue. In 1991 and in 2020, Barna research showed that two-thirds, two-thirds of Americans don't believe in absolute truth. So like if you're sitting in a row with three people, two of those three people may not believe in absolute truth. And and, and so that means that people don't believe in ideas and practices that are right and wrong for all people at all times and in all places. But we don't need polls or research to tell us that because we can just look around and understand that. Movies and music and conversations at work or on social media tell us that most people believe that you have your truth and I have my truth. But there's really no such thing as absolute truth. And what I want to suggest this morning is that despite all the protests to the contrary, that we all know, we all know that truth is real, even if we try and deny it. We know it's true. And that brings us to our first point this morning, and that's the existence of truth. You see, people might say that there's no truth, and they might even believe it. They might believe that there's no truth, but when push comes to shove, our lived experiences show us that we operate, that you and I, we operate in this world as if truth is real, and that's because it is real. And and one clear proof of the existence of truth is the experience that we have of feeling remorse. We feel remorse, or we feel guilt, and we feel shame when we do something wrong, And it's because there is actually a standard of right and wrong. And so when we misbehave or when we break that standard, we feel shame and guilt and remorse. That's why lie detectors work. Because they know you're lying. Because why? Because there is this physiological response in our bodies when we lie. And lie detectors work because our bodies start acting different. And others that are doing the test can detect it. I took a test, a lie detector test once. Uh, I was uh, right out of college. I was applying for the Gainesville Police Department, Go Gators. And, uh, and so I, was, um, I, had to, I, I made it through the uh, first initial like three steps. And I had to do a background check and get my fingerprints done. And I'll take a lie detector test. And I remember just the, the sheer, um, just the presence of being hooked up to that machine makes you nervous. And, uh, and I remember they were asking questions like, what's your name? And then they ask you to tell a lie on purpose so they can kind of gauge it. And then they said, they asked a series of questions and I failed one of the questions. And they asked me, have you ever been in the military? 
And I'm like, no, because I had never been in the military. I was like, no, I haven't. But the lie detector test said I was lying. And I said, well, how can that be? Like, I've never been uh, in, in the military. And they said, well, were any of your family members in the military? I was like, well, my dad was in the military, my grandfather, my other grandfather. Like, yeah. And they go, well, because you heard the word military, there was a response, a physiological response to that question. And that's how lie detector tests work. Now, some of you might say, no, you're like, Pastor Rick, those are socially conditioned responses that, that we feel uh, that, that that way that we feel that way because and we feel like there is no truth and we feel like people have conditioned us to right and wrong because that's what everyone's told us to do or maybe you you might think well it's the trauma of religion right like religion or organized religion has made us respond that way when we do something that is wrong and and, and that's exactly what freud and others like him were getting at and in his studies of the human uh, nature, he predicted that as atheism rose in the country, that as it rose in the world, that the experience of guilt and shame would go away because religion was no longer a part of the deal. And he felt like if, 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 uh, if religion went away and atheism rose, that we wouldn't feel guilt anymore and that, that we would be left with a society that was all about free expression and moral relativism. In other words, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. But funny thing is, our experiences have shown the exact opposite to be true, that studies have shown that as our culture moves away from organized religion, and I don't think that's a surprise to you, less and less people are going to church, less and less people are involved in religion, and so as organized religion decreases, the studies have shown that the feelings of shame and guilt are increasing, that they're not decreasing, but they're actually doing the exact opposite, and they're increasing, and the reason why is the difference is that we no longer know how to cope with it. That religion, that faith taught us how to cope with uh, our feelings of remorse and guilt and shame when we did something wrong. It was called forgiveness. It was called confession. And yet, because we live in this world that, that is no longer dependent on faith and religion, we no longer know how to deal with it. And so the idea that it's religion or society that has made us feel this way doesn't line up with the truth. It doesn't line up with the data. Or, or you might even say this about truth. You might say, I only feel guilty. Like uh, when we talk about uh, right and wrong, I only feel guilty or ashamed because I'm made to feel that way by the people who don't accept me. That it's the people around me that make me feel that way. But we also know deep down that that's not true either. Because the person that has the hardest time accepting you is you. Like, you have the hardest time. Like, like, we are always trying to convince ourselves that we are enough. We're always trying to convince ourselves that we're good enough. We spend so much time convincing ourselves that we're okay and that we don't feel guilt, shame, or remorse when it actually inside it is all alive and eating away at us. Another clear indicator that truth exists is our inconsistencies. Like everybody has them, inconsistencies. For example, the same people who might say that there's no such thing as truth, and you've experienced probably these people, they say, oh, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Your truth is yours, my truth is mine, but yet they complain about fake news. The same people complain about fake news, which only makes sense if there's a, such a thing as true news, Right? Or, or we all have these uh, deep inconsistencies like people who say there's no such thing as right or wrong 
And they'll tell you there's no such thing as right or wrong, but they get mad when you what? When you disagree with them. But wait a minute, I thought you said there's no such thing as right or wrong. Why are you getting upset because I don't agree with you? If there's no such thing as right and wrong, why are you mad that I don't believe you? It's inconsistency. And it's self-defeating from the very beginning. And, and we all know that truth really does exist. And Jesus says, I have come to make truth known. And maybe the most common evidence that truth exists in our day is the outrage that we experience over injustice. That when there's an injustice done, uh, we are outraged by it, which is a good thing, by the way. It's good that we get upset when injustice happens, and it should outrage us. But listen, you can't have it both ways. If there is no such thing as right and wrong, then there's no basis for our outrage over injustice. There has to be an objective standard, and when we don't rise to that standard, that is why we ex that's why we experience outrage over injustice. So let me just share with you, and, and we could talk about truth and, and right and wrong for hours. We could do a whole sermon series for a year on it. Well, let me just share with you this, that truth exists. And if it does exist, the question that we need to ask is, why do we work so hard to deny it? Like, why do we work so hard at saying, no, 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 there's no absolute truth. Your truth is yours. My truth is mine. Well, like Pilate, and he, he did the same thing. He didn't ask what was the truth. He said, what is truth? And, and, and I would submit that we do it for the same reason that Pilate did. That if truth is independent, is true, independent of us, that means that there is something outside of us that we must submit to. That if there's absolute truth out there and it's independent of us and our responses, then guess what? There's something out there that we have to submit to, and we don't like that. We don't like that. If truth is independent of us, guess what? We can't change it to suit our needs. We can't change absolute truth to meet our needs and our angle and our perception of what's going on. Uh, we can't change it. We have to submit to it. And the reality is that's something we don't really want to do. We don't want to submit to truth. And so if there is truth, then we must submit to it. And, and then as genuine seekers of truth, because if, we want, if there's an absolute truth, we want to know what it is, right? We want to be genuine seekers of that truth. Then we have to ask this next question which is, well, where can I find it? If truth is truth and it's absolute truth and it exists, then where can I find it? Where do I begin? Where do I look? And the answer to that question is also very long, but for our purposes, let's boil it down to this one sentence. And the sentence is this, there is no better place to look for truth than the person of Jesus. There's no better place to look for truth than the person of Jesus. All truth is wrapped up in who Jesus is. And that's why Jesus says in verse 37 of our scripture, he says, everyone on the side of what? Truth listens to me. Later on in John chapter 14, uh, Jesus says these words. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So truth exists, and the place that we should look for truth is in the person of Jesus. And, and, and as we look at Jesus and he says, well, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me, you think, well, that's, that's a pretty arrogant and audacious claim, right? 
Like, like there are only a few kinds of people who would make such a claim to say, hey, listen, check it out. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And if you want to come to, the, uh, any, to me, you have to come through. To come to the Father, you have to come through me. And so really, three people, I think, would make that claim, such a claim. And one person is someone who is totally arrogant, right? Like they are an arrogant pride monster. And they might say those words. The person that is full of arrogance and pride uh, might say, you need to come to me. I'm the source of truth. And, and, and that person knows that, they're not tr- that that's not true, but they're willing to say it so they can benefit from oppressing other people. This would be someone like a cult leader, right? Like there would be the person say, I have the truth and you must follow me and you must obey me and you must do everything that I say. And, and, and the only reason they do that is they know that they don't have the truth. But they want, to, uh, they want to control people or they want to uh, uh, oppress people. Uh, but we see clearly in the life of Jesus that that's not who he was. He didn't benefit at all from oppressing people with that status. In fact, what did Jesus do? He died for the very words that he said to Pilate. He died for us. A second person who might make that claim, not only is an arrogant person make that claim, but also a lunatic, right? Like crazy, like someone whose cheese has slipped off their cracker would be the kind of person that would make this claim, right? Like they would be willing to say that all truth is found in them, but it's not worth taking seriously because you know that that person's not all there, right? Like they are a few French fries short of a Happy Meal and you know it. And so a a lunatic or a crazy person would make that claim, but we see again in the life of Jesus and we see in, in, in the history that follows him that there's nothing about uh, being crazy in his, in his makeup. That for many people, for thousands of years, have been educated by him, they've been inspired by him, and they've been transformed by his teachings. That there's nothing crazy about Jesus. No one's ever said, well, Jesus was a few fries short of a Happy Meal, right? Like, it just doesn't happen. So clearly, he wasn't someone whose cheese had slipped off their cracker. Uh, And so the only other category that exists, either you're arrogant or you're crazy, or the third one is maybe what he said is true, right? Maybe what Jesus said about himself when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, maybe that was truth. Maybe the audacious claims that he's making about himself are actually true. And maybe he really is the way. And maybe he really is the truth and the life. In other words, Jesus is telling the truth about his ability to show us the truth. He's like, I want you to know the truth. I want you to know what truth is. I want you to know what the truth is. And so we do well. We do so well to listen to what Jesus says, which brings us to our second point, which is the testimony of truth. So truth is real. Truth is found in Jesus. And so our next obvious step is to ask, well, what did Jesus say? Like, what did Jesus say that was true? And Jesus tells us the truth about a lot of things. Like, if you open up the word of God, there's so much truth from the Genesis all the way to Revelation. There's so much truth. And let's, I just want to look at three really important things that Jesus tells us the truth about. The first thing that Jesus tells us the truth about is Jesus tells us the truth about God. He tells us the truth about God. John 1.18, he says in John 1.18, he says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the uh, closest relationship with the Father has made him known. That Jesus came from up there to down here on Christmas so that we might know who God is. And the purpose of Jesus coming was to tell us the truth 
about God, for us to get to know God. And it's similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from what? From heaven. So from a divine person against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who what? Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So the people down here, we don't want to know the truth. We suppress it. Uh, we enjoy the wickedness. We enjoy living in sin. And so verse 19 says, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the wor world, God's invisible qualities, his, his eternal power and divine nature have, clearly, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And so Paul clearly says that when you look out, when you and I, when we look out at creation, it's clear that there is a God and that he's powerful. That when you look at the hills of eastern Kentucky, when you look at the sunset and you look at the sunrise, when you see the snow fall and fill the ground, when you see uh, fall come, when you, see, uh, when you see summer and spring leap into action, uh, how can you not know that there is a God? And so Paul says, as a result, people are without excuse because of their wickedness, though. They suppress the truth. In other words, human reasoning, it's an amazing gift but because of the fall, because of what Adam and Eve did way back in Genesis, when they chose to do their own thing versus what God asked them to do, they discover we can't reason our way to God. We can't reason. We can't reason our way to who God is. In fact, we do the opposite. We suppress the truth because the truth reveals who we really are, right? The truth shows us who we are, and you can't reason yourself to believe in any God. There's no salvation in just believing in any God. The question is, who is the true God? Like, who is the God that is going to bring salvation? And Jesus comes to answer that question, and he does it with ultimate clarity. That when Jesus came, and he was born in that major, born of a virgin, and, he, and, he, and then he lived, and then he suffered on the cross, and he died, and then he rose again, so that we might know what salvation is. You see, Jesus reveals the truth about God. And you know why? Because he is God. And look at what he goes on to say in, in John 1. He says this in verses 14 and 17. He says, the word became flesh. The word Jesus became flesh and is dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and what? Truth. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that John brings up Moses, and he brings up Moses on the purpose because those words, grace and truth, they show up in Exodus 34 with Moses. And what Jesus is saying to the people that were listening is he's saying that God that showed Moses grace and truth, well, I'm that God. Like, I'm him. I am God. If you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus makes this clear throughout the Gospels. So let me just challenge you. Don't listen to anyone that tells you that Jesus was not God. And there are people out there, there are churches out there, there are preachers out there that are telling you that Jesus was not God. But Jesus tells us the truth about God because he is God. And if you want to know the truth about God, all you have to do is look at Jesus. You want to know who God is? Read the Gospels. 
Look at what Jesus did. If you want to know what, how, what God loves, look at what Jesus loves. If you want to know what makes God angry, look at what makes Jesus angry. If you want to know what makes God weep, look at what makes Jesus weep. Uh, throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus reveals to you and to me the truth about who God is. So Jesus reveals the truth about God. The second truth I want you to know is that Jesus reveals the truth about sin. He reveals the truth about sin. God is holy, right? He's holy, and, and, and only those who are holy like him can enter into the kingdom of God. And that's a problem for you and me because we're not holy. I mean, we're not. You might think you're holy. You're not holy. And, and we are sinners, and therefore, we're unable to come into his kingdom. But Jesus, Jesus comes to tell us the truth about God that, uh, because he's not a jerk, right? But, but so, that, so that we wouldn't go on thinking that everything is fine. Like God, Jesus doesn't come to say, hey, let me tell you about sin and let me just tell you that you're doomed in sin. Uh, but he says, no, he's like, I want you to know that not everything's fine. And I think we as Christians, sometimes we get comfortable in our sin. Like sometimes we get comfortable, we're like, ah, and I've heard people say this, ah, God will forgive me. Ah, he'll forgive me. And I think, ooh, man, I don't want to be that person. Like I don't want to, to say I can sin, it's okay to sin because, well, God will forgive me. And so Jesus comes to remind us that not everything is, uh, that, that everything isn't okay, and, and that we have a sickness, and we have a problem, and that sickness is called sin, and, and the first step to healing, right? The first step to healing is knowing and admitting that we have something wrong to begin with. Like, like if you have a, a, a sickness in your body, if you have a physical sickness, the first step to healing is to know that you have a sickness, right? And to identify what that illness is. So it is out of love that Jesus shows up and he tells us the truth about our sin problem. But if you're thinking of sin the wrong way, then all of this seems like drastic and over the top. And so we, seen, we, we tend to think of sin like this. We tend to think of sin like, yeah, I told a lie to my teacher in fourth grade. I did a bad thing, but everybody does bad things. Like, what's the big deal? And that's kind of how we view sin sometimes. But Jesus doesn't view sin in the same way. Like for Jesus, sin is a big deal. And just saying, well, you know, I did a lie, I did a bad thing, everybody does a bad thing, that's a complete misunderstanding of sin. Like when we recognize our sin, it should wreck us. When we recognize our sin, it should cause us to stop in our tracks and to say, man, I can't believe I did that. I need to go before the Lord. I need to confess my sin. I need to repent. You see, if we realize that sin is the curse that entered the world and that every relationship was broken because of that sin, that because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden, that there was this curse that took place. And, and we realize because our relationship with God is broken, that not only is our relationship with God broken, but our relationship with every other person is broken as well. And that's what sin does. It not only breaks our relationship with God, but it breaks every other relationship in our lives. So sin is something that I think we need to remember affects every relationship. It, it affects our relationship with others. It, it affects our relationship with ourselves. It affects our relationship with creation. Every single ounce of brokenness that we have finds its source in the curse of sin. Before sin entered the world, everything was perfect. Before sin entered the world, every relationship was whole. 
Before sin entered into the world, there was no sickness and death. But once sin entered into the world, everything became broken and began to die. You see, it's not simply that you told a lie to your teacher in fourth grade. Every bit of brokenness in our lives is because our relationship with God has been severed by sin, which means that Jesus came to restore that relationship. And by it all, uh, and by it all the others are redeemed, that when we receive Jesus into our hearts, our relationship with God is restored, and then our relationships with everything else begins to become redeemed or restored. The curse of sin, though. Hear me when I say this, it touches everything. But here's the good news. The salvation of Jesus touches everything, too. And that's good news for us. It touches everything to the degree that we understand how significant sin is, and we will embrace And we will appreciate the importance of the salvation of Jesus. But if we think of sin as just the small thing, eh, everybody does it, God will forgive me. If we have that view, salvation found in Jesus, it just becomes a small thing too. Eh, he died on the cross for me. Thanks, Jesus. You're my homie, right? And that's not how our response should be because Jesus comes to tell us the truth. Not only the truth about God, but the truth about sin. And he shows us how significant sin is in our lives. And we talked about this two weeks ago when we said that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. Jesus said, you've heard it said, and and right after that message, right after Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to, um, to fulfill it, Jesus began to talk about things and sin in our lives, and Jesus says these words. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I'm telling you that even if you hate your brother, uh, you're already committed murder in your mind or in your heart. He says, you think that you're good because you haven't killed anyone or cheated on your spouse, but I'm telling you, and check this out, this is hard, but I'm telling you, if you looked at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart already. So Jesus immediately takes it up a notch. He's showing us that sin is not just about our actions, it's actually a matter of our heart, that it goes all the way down to the core of who we are, that you and I, we have sinful hearts. And, and, and let's, Luke, Luke puts it this way in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, he says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And that's so true that when we have just sin living in our lives, living in our hearts, that's what comes out of us. But if we have good, when we have Jesus in our hearts, guess what comes out of us? Good. Jesus tells us the truth about God and he tells us the truth about sin, but here's the even better part. He tells us the truth about salvation. He didn't tell us the bad news and then peace out, right? Like Jesus didn't just say, hey, sin is bad. It's going to wreck your life. Now I'm out of here. He didn't do that. He also tells us the good news of salvation, that everything that is broken, Jesus has come to make right, that everything that has been severed, that Jesus has come to make whole, that when Jesus came from up there to down here on Christmas morning, 
It wasn't just a cool story to tell our grandkids, right? Like Jesus' purpose wasn't to say, oh man, I'm going to do this thing and then churches are going to celebrate it and they're going to have candles and they're going to sing Silent Night. It's going to be a beautiful thing and that's the whole reason why he did it. That's not why he did it. Jesus came from up there to down here on Christmas morning because it's a spiritual and physical necessity for us as the human race. That there was no other way to rescue us from our sin. That he had to become a man. He had to come and fulfill the law. And he had to do it because the responsibility, it was placed on humankind all throughout the Old Testament. And guess what? We failed miserably. We failed at it. Jesus, or God uh, wanted to raise up a people that would spread the good news and bring salvation to the world, but they failed at it. And so Jesus came. And last week we learned that someone had to form a people for God. Brenton talked about forming a people for God to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth with image bearers of God who will worship him and cultivate uh, the world for his glory. And that's what God tasked Adam with. And guess what? Adam failed. And then he gave that task to Noah, and Noah failed. And then he turns around and he gives it to Abraham, and Abraham fails. And then Moses, and Moses fails. And then David, and David fails, and so on and so on. But every one of those failures, every one of those failures was a part of God's plan to bring about a man who wouldn't fail. And his name was Jesus. Jesus came to make everything right. Jesus is the only one that obeyed the law perfectly. Jesus was the only one that could be the ultimate sacrifice for our failures. Jesus took the punishment as if he broke the law. Jesus took our sin, and though he was perfect, he took on human flesh and human nature that he might redeem both our spirit and our bodies. He took our corrupted hearts and he gave us new ones. He took care of every single problem. You see, salvation is found entirely and exclusively in Jesus. Let me just say that again. Salvation is found entirely and exclusively in Jesus. That's why Jesus could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He also says, um, he goes on in verse 7 of that same passage, says, if you really know me, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. You see, Jesus comes to tell the truth about salvation. And there's only one uh, way to be rescued, and it is only in him. That's the only way. The antidote to sin is Jesus. We all have the cancer called sin, and the only cure for that cancer is Jesus. And all of this is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And so as we close, we can't forget that the hope, the hope that drives this entire thing, just as the Old Testament prophets, as you read the Old Testament, they were hopeful. They were hopeful, waiting for the appearance of Messiah. And, and, and now we patiently wait and hope for Jesus to come again. I think of the wise men, and, uh, and, and as they saw the star, and they became hopeful. They became hopeful because they knew that the star was a symbol of the Messiah to come. And, and we, like the wise men, are hopeful. We wait for the second coming or the second advent, and that's what Jesus will do. He will come again. 
And that's what brings us hope at Christmas, that just as uh, Jesus fulfilled the hope of so many Old Testament prophets, he will fulfill our hope for him to come again. The first time Jesus came in humility, he came in grace, he came in lowliness. But when he comes again on that second advent, let me just tell you, he will come in glory. He will come in power, and it will be a breathtaking show of his majesty. Like Disney World fireworks got nothing on Jesus coming again. Nothing. Matthew 24, 27 says it this way. It says, for as lightning comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, you will never see anything like when Jesus comes again. And I hope that like you, like me, that you long for that day, that the hope of that day, that's what keeps me going, like knowing that Jesus is returning and knowing that I wanna gather as many people as I can with me. And I wanna tell as many people about the glory of Jesus. I want as many people to be rescued alongside of me that I get excited about that. That's my hope. That's what drives me. I get excited about that on Christmas because there wouldn't be an Easter if there wasn't a Christmas. The day where he sets everything right, where there, there will be his second coming, there will be no more tears, the Bible says. There'll be no more brokenness. Guess what? There'll be no more wars happening in the Middle East. There'll be no more sadness. There'll be no more violence in America. There'll be no more racism. There'll be no more disappointments. There'll be no more frustration. There'll be no more sadness. There'll be no more death. When Jesus comes, funerals go away. When Jesus comes, cancer leaves. When Jesus comes, divorce doesn't exist. When Jesus comes, all things are made new. You see, church, this is why Jesus is the reason for the season. He has come, and he's come to reveal truth, truth for you, absolute truth that you might know the truth about who God is, that you might know the truth about sin, that you may know the truth about salvation. He's come to reveal the truth. He's come to redeem a people. He's come to fulfill the law. Guess what? He will come again. And my question for you is will you know him? Will you know Jesus when he comes? Because the truth is you're either with him or you're not. And the way that we become with him is by believing in him and believing that he died on the cross for our sins and believing that he rose from the dead so that we might have life everlasting. So let me just ask you that question today. The greatest gift that you could ever receive this Christmas is the gift of Jesus. So do you know him? Do you know him today? Without a shadow of a doubt, you know that Jesus is your Lord, capital L, and your Savior, capital S. Do you know Jesus? It's the greatest gift I ever received, and I want it to be yours too. So if you're sitting here today and you're like, man, I just came to check out the good music, and but now I'm realizing I don't know Jesus, but I want to. Today is that day. 
where you just say to Jesus, Jesus, will you come into my life? Will you rescue me from my sin? Will you cure my sin problem? And will you make me whole and restore me? Jesus, I believe that you came. I believe that you lived on earth. I believe that you died on the cross. And I believe that you rose from the grave so that I could be whole again. Jesus, will you make me whole? Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for Christmas. I thank you for the many reasons that you came on that first Christmas. And Lord, I thank you that you came to reveal the truth to us, the truth about who God is, the truth about the sin that is living in us, and yet the truth about salvation, the good news, that we don't have to live in sin, that we can be redeemed and made whole and made new once again. So Father, if there's someone in this room that's never given their life to you, God, I pray that this morning would be the the moment that right in their seats, they would just say, Jesus, I need you. I want you to come and make me whole. I know that I have been far from you, but today I'm placing my trust and I'm placing my life in your hands. you to come and spend some time in prayer. Maybe you're you're wanting Jesus in your life. Come and just ask him. Just come and and kneel down at the altar and just say, Jesus, come. Maybe it's like, you know what, Christmas is really hard. And maybe this is the first Christmas without a significant loved one in your life. Maybe you just want to come and let God minister to you. Just let him love on you. Whatever it is, you come, you're welcome. Our house is your house. Spend time in prayer. If you want someone to pray with you, I'm right there on the front row. I'd be honored to pray with you. Or grab someone around you and say, hey, would you come pray with me? Um, but let's spend this last few moments just in a, uh, with hearts of worship, with hearts of hope, knowing that Jesus came to show us who God is. He came to reveal that we do have a sin problem, but then he also came to give us the answer, the antidote to that sin problem. Maybe you just want to say thank you, God. Whatever we do as we sing, let's do it with hearts of gratitude and hearts of worship. So stand with me and let's sing this song.